You're listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our amazing lineup of creators. Welcome back to Straight White American Jesus, once again here at the Summit for Religious Freedom, and now joined by Rabbi Robert Barr. So I just want to say, Rabbi, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm delighted to be here. Let me tell people about you. So you're on the Faith Advisory Council for Americans United. You're the founding rabbi of Congregation Beth Adam in Ohio and the longest tenured pulpit rabbi in greater Cincinnati. Popular speaker, you, you talk about topics like religious fundamentalism and ethics, a leader in modern liberal Judaism. In 2017, Rabbi Barr ran for Congress, only the third rabbi in this country ever to do so. Uh, so there's a lot to talk about, and uh, I think we're going to have a, a really rich discussion. Let, let's start with AU and the somewhat recent formation of the AU Faith Advisory Council. One of the things I really appreciate about the summit is this really feels like a big tent. There are a lot of non-religious folks here. There's a lot of uh, clergy. There's a lot of religious leaders. It's about half and half uh, in terms of attendance. What do you see as your role uh, in terms of the organization's work and its ongoing fight for the separation of church and state? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. I am delighted to be here. I am thrilled that the summit is taking place. This is incredible to see so many people gathered. One, it's great to see people gathered after COVID. It's nice that people do exist, that people who I've only seen in 2D now exist in 3D. So that really has been exciting. And to see the energy and the excitement and the passion and to see the insights that are being shared here has been really remarkable. So I was asked to join the, uh, the Faith Advisory Council, which I just grabbed onto when I had that opportunity. I've been involved in issues around separation of church and state uh, for about 40 plus years. I was uh, the vice president of the, the Jewish Community Relations Council in Cincinnati, and my portfolio, if you will, was separation of church and state. So it's something I've been talking about for a long time, and it's a, a concern of mine. I believe it is core to what is American. And when it, it devolves, or the, as somebody says, the bricks are taken out, our nation goes the wrong way. So being here and being part of the council and having these conversations to me is really great. I play sort of a role in my own rabbit. And I am on the very liberal side of Judaism. I Best way to understand me is I'm a secular rabbi. So no one quite knows where to put me. They go, oh, he's a rabbi, but he doesn't sound like a rabbi. When I was running for Congress, one of the things one does is you have somebody do opposition research on you. And the person who did my book said, oh, they're going to call you the rabbi without God. So I have this world of I'm religious, but I don't use religious language. And so I, I, I try to straddle two pieces of ice flow, if you will, without falling. You talked about the, the con congressional campaign. And one of the things that Rachel Lazar talked about today, uh, one of the things that has been on my mind recently is that I think there's a feeling around the country in places where uh, there seems to be a majority of the conservative uh, movement, the conservative white Christian and their representation that, hey, there's just no way I can win. There's no way that uh, there's any dynamism to this movement. What's the point? And I, I want to know, you know, that experience of running for Congress, what did you learn? What did that mean to you? What did that mean to your community? And 
what can, what lessons can you give to somebody who's listening and thinking, you know, I just, I'm not sure if I can do that, or I'm not sure that putting that kind of energy into something that feels like I'm on just the, the wrong side of the, all the momentum and the money is worth it. What, what would you say in the face of that kind of question? I would encourage anybody who's thinking about it, one, to do their homework and two, to do it. What I think people need to do if they're going to connect is to tell their story. I think too many people start talking about policy. They start talking about issues. Rather than that, what I was able to do, and probably comes out of being a rabbi and talking for my entire life, was I just told my story. And as I told my story about issues, whether it was having grandparents who were immigrants so I could talk about immigration rights, or I had a reading disability long before they even had terms for it. As my brother said, uh, you just weren't so bright. <laughs> but I had to learn to read. But I remember learning to read in the fifth, sixth grade. And I remember what public education meant. My wife had a miscarriage and we were with a doctor. And the conversation was, would you have saved the fetus's life or my wife's life? And the doctor said, in a heartbeat, the fetus, of course. So for me, I was able to take a whole series of different events and share with people my thoughts. And as you told the story, people connected. I think people are desperate for connections, and I think people find the stories compelling. And while I, I wound up stepping out, which is a whole other story for a younger candidate to come in who has had a more name recognition, uh, I raised more money in that quarter than anybody in the district had ever raised in, in the history of the district. And I got people excited again because they heard someone talking about their values. And even people who at the beginning didn't think they were going to like me began to say, oh, that guy's not so bad. He's talking about family. He's talking about experiences. He's talking about life. And that, I think, can move people. Doesn't necessarily mean you're going to win, but it gets the conversation out there. Once the conversation out there, you can't put it back in the bottle. You said something there that I think is important to me and especially is important to me as we think about what this weekend means to folks. And that is that you got people excited. There was a sense of hope. There was a sense of momentum. And I, for me, that's what, that's what counts. Uh, you know, there's, there's so many ways that we can feel and anticipate defeat before we even try. And you came out of that experience and your attitude is, Anyone who can should. It's not, oh, it wasn't worth it, or, uh, you know, the, the odds are stacked against us, so who gives, who gives a whip anyway? It's, if you can, do it, because you have no idea what that's going to mean to people in your community. They're, what your story, what your face, what your family is going to mean to them and their understanding of their potential inclusion in the, in the American experiment. Absolutely. I, I just love that. Mm -hmm. um, you talked about being uh, a rabbi who has... Uh, kind of peculiar place. I mean, the secular rabbi, you're used to disagreement. One of the things that's on my mind a lot is that on, on the, the side of the American right, Christian nationalism, conformity is a virtue. And so if you want to mobilize a group who prioritizes conformity, you have a pretty straight line. When I think of the folks who are gathered here this weekend, I think of folks who value and prize diversity and difference. And that's beautiful. However, mobilizing that kind of group can be a little bit more difficult. You have a lot of experience. 
you have strategies, you have insight on how that works and how to work with other groups and other people from other contexts than yourself? Uh, sure. But before I answer that, I'm going to go back to something else about hope. Every problem we're experiencing right now, every problem, including climate change, is human-made. We made every problem we are experiencing. We, are, we have allowed to happen the reversal of a trends in America as human beings. What gives me hope is if human beings can screw it up, we can fix it. That's what compels me, is to remember that we have that capacity. So that's the first thing I would say to a disparate group of people. We are witnessing what human beings have done. If we have the strength, the character, and the will, we can make a difference. Now, the challenge becomes not to form a circular firing squad where we are arguing about every issue. And that's hard because it is easy to get into the weeds and into the minutia. And what we need to do and what I try to do is ask the question, what is our core value? What are we trying to achieve? and try to work to that goal, recognizing that we're not always going to agree. I also believe, and I think this is very important in the space we're talking about, is we need to recognize that there are multiple organizations and multiple ways to work, that we all don't have to work exactly the same. Some can be the point of the spear. They can push the issue in a way that may make me uncomfortable, but they're absolutely comfortable. Other groups may be a little bit more conservative in their approach, and they can come in a different way. We need to have agreement about the core issues, and we need to allow each to do their own thing in their own way. I also believe that we also need to have certain common language that we amplify each other. Unfortunately, I think the, the, the religious right, the Christian nationalists do this very well. They use words and they amplify each other's. Those of us oftentimes in the, the progressive movement, whatever we want to call it, don't amplify each other or will knock each other down. I think what we need to do is not to stop doing that, have a core uh, vocabulary, a lexicon that we all use that when you hear it, 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 it resonates. I also think we need to go back to our, what I would call our sacred documents, the Constitution of the United States, the Declaration of Independence. We have standing and documents and writers that were incredibly powerful. We were the first secular nation in the history of the world. We literally, the people who created this country were pushing against hundreds of years, if not thousands of years of monarchies that saw themselves as divine. These were strong, brave, bold, creative thinkers. We should be drawing on them and quoting them all the time. We don't have to create everything anew. We have history to stand on. And I would suggest that as we do this, we would each of us take our place in that role, make agreements, recognizing our diversity, but recognizing even though we're diverse, we have some core, we have core ideas that hold us together. It's just so much there. I, you know, one of the things that you made me think of, and this this might sound strange at, at first uh, breath here, is I, I spent a lot of my academic life in France, and France has its own set of issues. Believe me, this is no uh, eulogy to, to to French politics. But what strikes me every time we talk about the, the United States being a secular government is when I'm in France, laicite, secularity, is is a good word, and 
it's something that's like a sacred virtue. In the United States, it's like a, it's like a slur. It's like a bad word. You know, it's like the idea that we have a secular government gives everyone pause. They're like, well, are we allowed to say that? And, you know, there's always people in the room that are like, is that true? And I don't like that. This is making me uncomfortable. I, and the United States lexicon as a whole is much more comfortable with one nation under God, much more comfortable within God we trust than what you said, that we have the first secular government. And finding ways to celebrate that and to reinvest in that as a virtue, not something to be afraid of, seems really important. We've heard Rachel Lazar talk about uh, the ways that church-state separation is almost an umbrella that helps us understand uh, the ways that reproductive rights, uh, that protecting the, the LGBTQ community, that thinking about healthcare, thinking about education, they're all linked. What does that look like for you in a place like Ohio, in a place like Cincinnati? Okay, there's a lot. <laughs> we have like just a few minutes. So I, Ohio used to be called the Bell, Bellwether State. You know, it, how, how Ohio voted, that was going to be America. That, I don't know if it's ever was really true, but no, we've become a far, far more conservative state. Uh, though Sherrod Brown, remember, is, is a senator, and Sherrod has figured out a way, uh, Senator Brown has figured out a way to, to, to relate to a really diverse state. We're having issues in in Ohio, uh, you know, issue around abortion. We're trying to get an amendment to protect it in the Constitution. There's all kinds of wrangling going on about that. So that's an issue. Vouchers are an issue in, in Ohio. So we're, we're seeing all the same issues. For me, as, as, as a religious leader, and I have a voice to say, separation of church and state is important because it allows us our more, most basic rights. Finding coalitions to work in, we're doing, we're doing that. But something else that we're doing, and I'm very proud of this at my congregation, one of our social justice issues, we have two, climate change and separation of church and state. We have a team of folks who are working on that. And what did they do? They spent about six to eight months doing research. They've now created a, a presentation that they're doing, and because of Zoom and because of COVID, frankly, across the country to adult education groups, both uh, religious groups as well as secular, Ali, which is the retired folks. And what's interesting to me is they're getting invited back. It's a question and a conversation people want to have, and they're connecting as lay people to lay people. It's not a group of lawyers. It's not an organization. It's a group of folks that say, we belong to a, a, a synagogue, we're Jewish, and for us, separation of church and state is vital because it was the first nation in the world that allows Jews to be free and equal citizens. And when they tell that story, people connect and it's raising questions and it's getting people as part of the conversation. We've allowed you, what, our nation, to make the word secular a bad word. There was a time, think about when Kennedy, if you've ever, if you've, Kennedy, President Kennedy's speech about he wasn't going to be holding the Pope, was it a powerful speech about a vision of America? And there was a time that that secular or vision of America was, was, was strong and powerful. And slowly we watched it deteriorate. We allowed folks to, to take pieces away. Typically they started with pornography. That was Jerry Falwell was, I mean, I watched Jerry Falwell early, early on, and he picked the air because no one wants to get up and defend pornography. But, but he put pornography and homosexuality as part of his culture war. And everyone thought, oh, this guy's a sort of a, a rotund guy, sort of silly with an accent. And he had it. And he was working with Paul Warwick back then. And they had their mailing list and they were developing an, a, a strategy 
and we didn't take it seriously. We said, oh, it'll never get traction. Oh, who's going to listen to that? And we watched them just, it wasn't, it wasn't giant bricks being taken out of the wall of separation. It was little chips. And that's what it takes. Because if you erode the foundation, the whole wall comes collapsing. I think we're living in a time of the drip, like the slow melt, because we have uh, every day seemingly votes uh, that, that allow vouchers for religious schools in the Midwest or the South. We have attacks on school curricula. There, there's a lot. I, I, we're going to run out of time. I just want to ask you one last question, and you touched on it, and I'm so glad you did. You talked about the groups from your your congregation going out and explaining that the separation of church and state means so much to them as religious people, because it's a separation of church and state that allows them their religious identity as citizens, the United States being the first country that gave Jewish people uh, full citizenship and recognition. How And I, so I think you've already answered the question, but I'll just ask it this way. How does robust separation of church and state provide at least some kind of protection against anti-Semitism. I'm really glad you made that connection because I, I think they're, they're related. Because, you know, we're living in a time where minorities are, are marginalized more and more. And the Jewish community did, was doing well for a while. But we see the resurgence of that, that resurgence of anti-Semitism. Because again, it cuts against the, the white nationalist vision of what the world should be. I mean, Jews have always played a strange role. Jesus was Jewish. So why didn't we accept them? We're sort of that the fifth column. And, and it still exists. And so separation of church and states ensures full equality. It's not just the, it's not just, uh, the First Amendment. People forget. It says in the Constitution that there's no religious test to to, to hold office of the country. So reminding people of that, reminding people of full and equal citizenship is, is essential to the health of, of, for the Jewish community, and I think for all marginalized communities. And I think what we need to do is we all need to recognize that prejudice, anti-Semitism is, is one facet of prejudice. It's all the same uh, reprehensible ideology, and we're looking at it different facets. Unfortunately, a lot of times, marginalized communities, we argue about who got who has it worse, and it doesn't matter. We should stop arguing about who had it, has it worse. We should all recognize that unless we work together to change it, it's going to continue. So that's part of what we're doing with with our talking about separation of church and state, making sure that that is, exists in in a place that people feel comfortable. I worry about the kids in my congregation, you know, when they go to school and what are they learning and how are they learning it? So it's, it's, it's a profound and important issue. And it's just, it's countrywide. I, you know, I live in, uh, in San Jose, California. We have one of the last remaining Japan towns in the country. Oh. So we, we have San Jose, San Francisco, and LA. And the anti-Asian hate during COVID was so bad that in San Jose, a place that has its own Japan town, we had to have a volunteer brigade who would walk around Japantown night and day to make sure that the elders in the community were not attacked. And so when you say, I worry about my, you know, the kids and them going to school and, and I'm thinking about the elders walking, you know, three blocks from where I live. And I'm thinking, this is the America we live in, in 2023. So we're out of time. Um, I'm just so thankful that you stopped by to kind of share, uh, just the, the decades of, of insight and lessons from your your congregation 
from all your work, from your organizing. And uh, here's my last question. Surely people are going to hear this and want to link up with things you're doing. Where can they find uh, a place to do that with you? So they can go to my congregational website, Beth Adam, B-E-T-H-A-D-A-M dot org. They can go there, dot org. Or if you type in Rabbi Robert Barr in Google, I think I'll come up. <laughs> it just happens every once in a while. My, my name pops. People might find you there, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's... And I'm not the Bob Barr who was like a, the Congress in, Ger in Georgia. Which... Different, different Bob, Bob Barr. Barr. I actually okay. did a podcast about that. I'm not that Bob Barr. Okay. I mean, that might be a good Twitter handle. Not that Bob Barr. Um, but that's really good. All right. Well, thank you so much for, for stopping by. I hope we can talk again. And we really appreciate you. Appreciate it. Thank you. This has been an Irreverent Media Podcast.